Coming up on Tech Nation, I speak with Harvard University psychologist Steven Pinker, who you may remember from such books as The Blank Slate. He's here today with rationality, what it is, why it seems scarce, and why it matters. Then, Lemony Snicket, the one and only. You know him from his children's book series, a series of unfortunate events, as well as a writer of adult fiction, including Bottle Grove. He's here today with Poison for Breakfast. You'll start bewildered and leave bewildered, but feeling much better about it. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In a 2013 Tech Nation interview, I was able to speak with Dan Rome, the founder of the Napkin Academy and the author of Blah, 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 What to Do When Words Don't Work. He's long been known for drawing pictures of complex events, I was sure that when he reads the news every day, he gets pictures in his brain. Oh, that happens all the time. For me, it happens all the time. In fact, I have a mantra that I say, whenever I could draw a picture of something, I should draw a picture of something. And one of the issues that I find when people say, Dan, you know, I like this idea of visual thinking, but it's not for me because I'm not visual. It's just an issue of practice. And part of that goes back to what you call the fox and the hummingbird. Yeah. My fox and my hummingbird. Everybody has one. Or one of each. And what we all have both. <laughs> we all have a fox and a hummingbird. And what they really are is a new take on the old notion of right brain and, and, and left brain thinking, which we know over the last 25 years, since the very first people were coming up with this notion of saying, well, as humans, isn't it interesting that our neocortex, the top part of our brain, most of our brain is split in half. Isn't that funny? Why might that be? And forever and ever, we didn't know. And, and way back in, you know, in the dark ages, scientifically, people would say that, well, one lobe of the brain is probably just redundant. We probably don't need it at all. And then, of course, over the last 20 years, it became clear that both halves of the neocortex seem to do things slightly differently. And we all got very excited in sort of the notion of pop psychology because it is such a magnificent visual analogy, which I love, this notion that our neocortex split into two halves. Each half is specialized on doing one thing. And one half is about being analytical and the other half is about being creative. And it turns out it's just nowhere near that simple. <laughs> so it, one of the things we do know Welcome is that, to science. Welcome to science. It's nowhere near that simple. And you know what? So many of us would hold on to this really lovely notion of saying I'm right-brained or I'm left-brained. It's so unfortunate that we have to let that notion go. But we do know this, that the two halves of our neocortex have evolved over the millions of years to have slightly different function. One half of our brain has evolved to become really good at looking at the world in terms of little bits, kind of looking at the world as if it were pixels. But think what would happen, and this is why we needed the other half of the brain, the part that then focuses on the broader picture, on the periphery. Because if we're so busy focused out on the horizon, you know, if we believe this model, then we're not paying any attention to the thing that's crawling up behind us that's going to jump and eat us. So one half of our brain has evolved to be able to look at the little bits and focus. The other half has evolved to be the glue and pull it all together. So back to the fox and the hummingbird. I wanted to come up with a model that did show that we have two different brains, and it's not so simple as one being verbal and one being visual. And I said, imagine if half our brain was like a fox, very clever, 
very linear, kind of smug, kind of self-satisfied, but able to look at the world and say, I know what to do. And that, to me, really is more our verbal mind, our fox mind. And then I thought, well, how do we account for the fact that sometimes we see the world as a map? We see everything at the same time. Well, that's more like the hummingbird mind. So fast, so flighty, can't focus, can't settle down, but equally valid a view of the world. And the problem, Moira, is that from an educational perspective, we have learned to believe that our fox mind, our more linear mind, is what it means to be intelligent. And so what we do in school is we teach ourselves and our students how to be verbal, how to describe things in a linear A, B, C, D fashion, which half the time is wonderful. But unfortunately, that's all the training that we do. Nobody has ever given us a tool to say, well, what about the part of our mind that's seeing the whole at once, the peripheral view, the hummingbird moving so fast that it sees everything, you know, it sees the trees, it sees the flowers all at the same time, is not able to process it in an A, B, C, D way, but in a whole way. We have no tools for that. So that's where really I set out to try to say, we know how to be a good fox. Let's learn how to be a better hummingbird. This 2013 Tech Nation interview featured Dan Rome and his book, Blah, 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 What to Do When Words Don't Work. His most recent book is Draw to Win, a crash course on how to lead, sell, and innovate with your visual mind. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, I speak with experimental cognitive scientist Steven Pinker, the Johnstone Family Professor of Psychology at Harvard University. He's here today with rationality. We'll talk about where it is and where it isn't in today's world. Then we have a visit from Lemony Snicket. He poses some interesting questions, many of which are contained in his latest book, Poison for Breakfast. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global. On the web at mindk.com. And now, Steven Pinker. Steven, welcome back to Tech Nation. Thank you. Now, if there's one thing that's been bothering me tremendously in recent years, it's how some substantial number of people will listen to and believe easily disproved misinformation, and also can't seem to distinguish between opinion and fact. I guess you wrote this book for me, huh? <laughs> right. Yes, it's, uh, to begin with, we, uh, human irrationality has always been with us. So, uh, and in fact, one form of irrationality that has been one of my hobby horses over several books is to look at something that's bad now and conclude, oh, it's gotten worse. A lot of things are bad now, and they, they've always been bad. Sometimes they've even been worse in the past. I mean, I've, I've written about this when it comes to violence and poverty and illiteracy and, uh, and uh, disease and so on. In the case of, of irrationality, people have believed in conspiracy theories for a long time, like the Illuminati and the cons Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Uh, people have, uh, have circulated fake news for a long time. There was, before there was 
uh, Facebook, there were supermarket tabloids with sightings of uh, Elvis and two-headed babies. Uh, belief in, in the paranormal is kind of what we call religion of uh, you know, miracles and, and uh, uh, communicating with the souls of the dead. And uh, reports of, of um, tall tales about miracles were the original fake news. So we're dealing with a, a, a longstanding uh, part of the human condition. Now let's define rationality and irrationality. What's the difference, and is there anything in between? Yeah, I mean, I, I define rationality as the use of knowledge to pursue a goal, and knowledge as a justified true belief. And so irrationality would be the opposite. But what's folded into that definition is that rationality always is in service of a goal, and that goal itself may may or may not be uh, rational. So, for example, if the goal is to earn you know, brownie points within your own social clique or to fire up your coalition and make the other side look as stupid and evil as possible, you could pursue that goal rationally, while at the same time really reasoning that if everyone pursues that goal at the same time, then uh, we're all worse off. It's not a rational goal for everyone to pursue, even if it's rational for each and every one of us within our own little social circle. Well, you really put your finger on it. You know, it's as if the point of argument is to portray the other uh, party or the other person as being something less than they should be. So you discredit them. You discredit anyone who is an adversary. Uh, indeed. And it, it is what's sometimes called the my side bias might be the strongest and most pervasive cognitive fallacy. And experiments have shown that smart people can make blunders in logic and blunders in doing arithmetic if they are looking at arguments that either favor or oppose uh, one of their pet causes, like capital punishment, like affirmative action. Uh, people will, first of all, try to show why their prior beliefs are right. And if the argument or the data go the other way, then it goes right over their heads when it's one of these politicized uh, issues that's close to home. Um, so yeah, we, we, uh, since it's unlikely that any particular uh, person or group will be you know, infallible or omniscient, it's unlikely that the one you don't belong to is consistently stupid and evil and wrong about everything, it calls for stepping back and realizing that this is a, a, a pervasive bias and to try to look for ways of uh, of approaching the truth and to and figuring out which policies are best that are uh, most likely to be be true. That is to to try to be objective, to try to look at at uh, valid empirical tests. Well, you this reminds me of one definition I remember from years ago of maturity. That maturity was the ability to have multiple behaviors at your beck and call or multiple observations of how one might look at something. And of course, as we mature, if we're really maturing and not just getting older, we can then step back and go, okay, what's that person's uh, bias? What's that person's bias? What's that person's experience? To try to put that together into a whole. Uh, absolutely. Uh, including our own biases, of course. What? I have none. You have none. Right. The, uh, I, there's a, a wonderful <laughs> That's quote. That's my bias. <laughs> <laughs> it's a wonderful quote from Richard Feynman that they first priority in, in uh, science is not to fool yourself because you are the easiest to fool. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Now, let's get to uh, sound reasoning. Uh, it's not just logic, is it? 
It's not just logic. Uh, and in fact, there are cases in which logic can be uh, irrational in the sense that it requires you to set aside everything you know and to concentrate only on what is stated explicitly in the premises as true or false. And in the real world, we often have to take into account um, dozens or scores of hundreds of considerations, each one pushing or pulling us in, 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 in one direction or another. And we have to bring it to bear on a problem everything that we know, not just what was uh, stated on the page as uh, in, in a short list of premises. The, the, the biggest part of my, my book, Rationality, consists of these cognitive tools that coming from, from mathematics and from philosophy and social science that are that don't come naturally to us. They, they've been painstakingly invented over the centuries and perfected, uh, but they're ways that all of us could be smarter if we mastered them. And in the same way, we, aren't, we don't come into the world being able to read or write or, or uh, multiply and divide, but we learn them in school, and it's a good thing we do. Uh, I think it would be a good thing if everyone uh, mastered the basics of probability and logic and critical thinking and uh, statistical decision theory and rational choice theory, causation and correlation. Uh, they're just ways of, of being smarter about everything that you think about. And can anybody do that or do you need a college degree? Uh, I sure hope you don't need a college degree. I, I mean, I like to think you need you need you need my book rationality. Yeah, but, That'll uh, do it. It's not the only. It's not the only way. Uh, but, um, but but no, I do think that, that a lot of these are um, they can be explained. They're, they don't require lots of you know fancy equations or symbols. They don't require a college degree. They they kind of require refining parts of our own rationality, our own common sense that can sometimes get um, uh, kind of lost in the heat of the moment that are, uh, when they're explained, it makes sense, but someone has to explain them in the first place. Um, and they're, they're, uh, they often refine our, our intuitions that we already do have. Now, as we listen to uh, and watch and read all of the information today, and there's so much more information than there ever was, um, what are the earmarks that maybe you're listening to something or reading something or watching something that uh, may not be totally rational? Well, if it's <clears throat> too conveniently makes your particular uh, group, your, 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 your political party, your, um, your, your tribe, your, your ethnic group, your profession, uh, if it seems to put a halo on, on your side and on horns and a tail on the other side, there's you know, reason to think that that might be just too convenient. Um, if it uh, if it's the first thing that pops into mind, if it's just your your gut reaction, that's a reason to think twice because a lot of our uh, seat of the pants intuitions turn out to be mistaken. Uh, so th those those are a couple of giveaways. Now, of course, sometimes your side is right, but it's not guaranteed to be right. Now, you, I was waiting for you to drop something that I could ask you this question, that gut reaction. Where in the bookstore did they physically put your book with respect to Malcolm Gladwell's Blink, The Power of Thinking Without Thinking? Yes. Well, I, I kind of hope they, they, they might put them side by side. But, uh, uh, but I, I think that the, uh, within, within the field that inspired Blink, namely psychology and, and uh, particularly social psychology, I, I tend to think most uh, most scientists today would uh, 
would say that the overall message of Blink is is misleading. That there there are some cases in which people's first impressions are correct, but there are an awful lot of cases in which they aren't, uh, and that in general, uh, reflection, uh, thinking twice, is a uh, is a good thing. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Stephen Pinker, the John Stone Family Professor of Psychology at Harvard University. He's an experimental cognitive scientist doing research in cognition, language, and social relations. You know him from such books as The Blank Slate, The Better Angels of Our Nature, and Enlightenment Now. He's here today with rationality, what it is, why it seems scarce, and why it matters. Now let's jump directly to conspiratorial thinking. That's big in the news, whether they know it or not. <laughs> uh, indeed. And uh, it's very much on our minds with uh, <clears throat> QAnon, the, the theory that the deep state houses a cabal of Satan-worshipping cannibalistic pedophiles, with uh, uh, the, the continuing persistence of the so-called truthers, uh, the, the belief that 9-11 was a uh, controlled implosion, uh, <clears throat> with uh, the... the um, the so-called stop the steel conspiracy theory that despite uh, all evidence, the 2020 uh, presidential election was uh, stolen um, uh, together with the, the, the JFK assassination conspiracy theories, anti-Semitic uh, conspiracy theories, the Jews control the, the, uh, the world economy uh, and on and on. There's Pizzagate. Pizzagate's always popular. Pizzagate, which was a predecessor of, of uh, QAnon, COVID-19 conspiracy theories, like it's all a plot by Bill Gates to implant microchips in people's arms. So what, what, what's the deal with conspiracy theories? First thing is that they're not new, even though it's possible that social media make them easy, easier to spread. But uh, we've had in the past the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, the Illuminati, uh, <clears throat> uh, fears about the, 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 the Trilateral co uh, Commission, uh, uh, and, and one analysis that tried to see if there were any trends in conspiracy theories by Joseph Yushinsky, who's one of the world's experts, found no increase over about 100 years of, uh, that, that, he, that he looked at. Um, so it's always a vulnerability. They uh, are, are popular for another number of reasons. One of them is almost by definition, they're not falsifiable. Every time you uh, say, well, there's no evidence for, for this theory. They say, well, that just shows what a diabolical uh, conspiracy it is. They, they've managed to hide all the evidence. <laughs> they're really good. <laughs> exactly. So there, there's a certain categories of belief uh, that are uh, that are infectious because they protect themselves against refutation. Uh, so the idea that, for example, ESP is uh, vulnerable to skepticism. If there are too many skeptical vibes who doubt that there's such a thing as ESP, then your ESP ability uh, vanishes. Well, that, that's pretty convenient. Uh, the, you know, the theory that if, the the idea that if you um, uh, uh, if you deny the accusation that you're a racist, that proves you're a racist. Well, kind of hard to. When did you stop beating your wife? <laughs> that that whole category of beliefs. That that's one part of it. Another part is that um, we do have some. Uh, I probably innate wariness of the possibility of conspiracy simply because in human prehistory, uh, it was conspiracies that, that made us most vulnerable to, uh, to, to attack by others. That is, 
tribal warfare, primitive warfare, did not consist uh, primarily of pitched battles of you know, two sides chucking spears at each other on, on a field, but they were uh, ambushes and pre-dawn raids. Um, they really were conspiracies, you know, and, and occasionally they still are. And so, and they are you know, diabolically hard to detect because they are indeed plotted in secrecy. So we're born with uh, a certain kind of you know, wariness. Um, uh, so we're, we're kind of predisposed to conspiratorial thinking in, in the first place. We also have, all of us have a um, kind of intuitions about design and, and intention. We know that our own plans and the, the, the plans of the people that we live and work with uh, are behind the course of events. And it's easy to leap from that to assume that everything that happens must be for a reason, that there are no coincidences. Uh, and that if bad things happen, someone must have wanted the bad thing to happen. It's a you know a bad habit of thinking, but it's and it's one that we unlearn when we know history, when we see data, when we look at official investigations, responsible journalism. But a lot of people mistrust government and journalists and and, and academics, and so the the means by which conspiracy theories are ordinarily debunked just don't uh, carry any weight with a lot of people who feel alienated from these institutions uh, to begin with. Conspiracy theories also give you a feeling of moral superiority, that even though there are powerful elites, governments, and millionaires, and, uh, and, and experts, um, they're actually morally tainted, even for all their power, and you can feel morally superior to people who are more powerful than you. Uh, so there are a number of things that, that predispose us to them, and, and one of the, uh, uh, the, the the only weapons to push back include common sense, uh, namely, such as, do you think thousands of people could all you know keep a secret like the the moon landing being a fake or, or QAnon without anyone uh, actually coming out and, 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 and then blurting out their participation or there being a leak or a snafu or something going wrong? Uh, and the ability of responsible fact-finding institutions like um, news sources, like universities, like government agencies to establish their neutrality and, uh, and, uh, and objectivity, to lift the hood and show how they work, how uh, if there were a, um, a counter-evidence or a conspiracy, this is how we would, would find it and also not to paint themselves as the standard holders for one uh, political coalition or, or another. If universities are seen as just um, shock troops for the political left, then people on the right will just uh, dismiss them. You quote Carl Sagan, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. We have extraordinary claims that are reality today. The creation, unbelievably, in 13 months of COVID vaccines. That's just extraordinary. It's almost a miracle. It is extraordinary. Uh, it is a, a secular miracle that we should appreciate. And of course, there is extraordinary evidence that they work. Uh, you know, studies of hundreds of thousands or millions of people. Uh, and it is vital that scientists and journalists um, uh, highlight that evidence uh, rather than kind of forcing it down people's throats, where the experts trust us, it should be if uh, it, if they didn't work, this is what you'd see. If they did work, this is what you what you'd see. You know, look at what's happened. Look at the studies. Look how many people there are. Look look at how these studies were done uh, to uh, reestablish 
credibility by exposing the train of thinking and evidence that leads to their conclusions. In fact, we can look today on who with the D variant is in trouble in hospitals, in ICUs, and, and worse. Um, and these are mostly people who have had no vaccinations, and yet so many people don't wish to be vaccinated. You know, indeed. And, and of course, there are you know, part of, of the my side bias is that you dismiss evidence that uh, contradicts your a deeply held belief. So not the, the, the true believers will not be disabused merely by evidence. Uh, but there are people who are not true believers, who are squishy believers and their minds can be changed. But it also probably requires that um, capitalizing on some of our cognitive biases and weak spots, such as we trust authorities within our own coalition. And in addition to presenting the evidence to recruit spokespeople that would that are trusted within communities of, of uh, denialists to, to spread the message. So in particular, if Donald Trump could be recruited as a, um, uh, a crusader for vaccines, if we you know, kind of let him take credit for Operation Warp Speed, if he wants to call it the Trump vaccine, let him call it the Trump vaccine. Uh, <laughs> Get it into arms. <laughs> reproduce the, 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 you know, the, the, the photos of him getting vaccinated. Um, take advantage. It, it may be, you know, a, a little bit, uh, you know, dodgy or squirrely as legitimate evidence, but it would, um, but it's not totally wrong. And if it helps to uh, sway the people who would be uh, uh, persuaded uh, then it's it's a tool that should be used. Uh, if not Trump, then uh, any person on the, the the right, or in the case of other resistant communities, because there are other ones, there there are there's a low rate of take up in in many uh, African American communities to get respected African American spokespeople to uh, to to repeat the message. You know, again, even the, the best of us aren't always persuaded by evidence uh, and other. Tools such as trusted spokespeople may be essential in the persuasion campaigns as well. I just don't see so many places today where we're encouraged to do that reflection step, to really think about it. It's like, just give yourself some time to think about it. Well, in our, our best rationality promoting institutions, that, that's what happens. I mean, that's that's the ideal or the aspiration, certainly for academia, for, for universities. It is for responsible journalism. It is for government agencies that, that collect and, and, and publish data. Uh, it, it, it ought to be for deliberative democracy. It ought to be in the court system. And when you think about it, every one of those institutions follows rules or promotes rules that, that often feel annoying when you when they apply to you, <laughs> like other people can criticize your beliefs and you have to defend them with evidence. Uh, you can't just blurt out anything you want, but it can be you know, vetted or fact-checked or sent out for peer review or your, your editor gets a say. Uh, uh, all of these are uh, kind of slow down the dissemination of ideas. They make it so that you can't just say anything you want without being um, uh, open to criticism. But they're what allow us to be rational. They often, these institutions fail at their, uh, they don't live up to their own standards as when unpopular academic ideas get censored or, or punished. But it means that we should kind of redouble our commitment to the to, to, to rules of the game that uh, hold out the hope of making us uh, more rational than, than any of us can be individually. 
I've been speaking with Harvard University professor Steven Pinker. His book is Rationality, What It Is, Why It Seems Scarce, and Why It Matters. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, Spotify, and Alexa Podcasts, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, we'll hear from Lemony Snicket himself. His latest is Poison for Breakfast, and it speaks to anyone who from time to time finds life quite bewildering. Stay with us. Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Harvard University professor Steven Pinker. His book is Rationality, What It Is, Why It Seems Scarce, and Why It Matters. Now, I was uh, discussing your book with a friend recently, and uh, he said, I'd just be happy if people could learn the difference between causation and correlation. Now, it seems like, oh, haven't we thrashed that one to death? And it's like, you know, not these days. Let's take us back. What's causation? What's correlation? And how can we tell the difference? What are the earmarks? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you asked because there is actually a chapter in rationality called Correlation and Causation, precisely because all of us care about uh, uh, co- co- correlation and causation. Um, and... Uh, it often isn't easy, even in, with the best science to tell them apart. And you know, scientists often make errors because it's, it, it can be hard to tell them apart. The cliche is that the gold standard is the randomized controlled trial. That is, you uh, have you set up one little world in which you uh, uh, introduce the putative cause, let's say a, um, uh, a medicine, a group that is identical to them, as identical as possible, but without the uh, putative cause, so they get a placebo. It looks like the medicine, but it's just... It looks like the medicine, tastes like the medicine, so it can't just be your expectation of improvement that cures you. Uh, it can't just be that uh, you're going to get better anyway, and, uh, and you, you mistakenly attribute it to the drug. And then you compare the two samples. Now, 
society isn't a lab. We can't have randomized controlled trials for everything. Uh, and there are a number of statistical workarounds that I explain uh, in, in, in rationality where, you know, you know, damn it, we don't live in a, in a lab. The world, the world can't be controlled. But we can do the, sometimes the next best thing. We can statistically control for various um, confounds. That is, if you're wondering whether uh, exercise reduces heart attacks or, or uh, um, diet reduces uh, heart attacks, you can look at the people who eat fat but exercise a lot and the people who don't exercise a lot but uh, um, uh, eat lean and see which is the one that makes you healthier over the long run. I mean, that's a simplified version. Uh, if you don't know whether A causes B or B causes A, whether um, people who don't exercise get sick and weak or people who are sick and weak don't exercise, you can measure them at two different points in time and see whether the, uh, uh, the, the putative cause earlier affects the putative effect later rather than vice versa because the future can't affect the past. You know, there, there are a number of, of tricks which I, I, I try to explain in the book. But it, it behooves all of us to just know that there's a difference, that sometimes it's very, very difficult to tell, and to consume the, the, the studies and take lessons from the studies that do our worldly best at, at uh, distinguishing correlation from causation. Well, your book could have been named Know Thyself. I kept going... Okay, yeah. Yeah, I see where I see where I did that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I see where they did that or this person or this group or this study did that. I see it. You know, I see it now. Well, indeed, and even though that that advice goes back 2400 years to to, to Socrates, uh it's 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 well worth uh taking into account now that knowing yourself in the sense that realizing you're not infallible, you're not omniscient, uh that you should uh, try to step outside yourself and doubt your own first impressions. That that's that's part of the path toward rationality. And of course, those institutions that I spoke about, like free speech, like deliberative democracy, like the adversarial system in the courts, like peer review, like editing and fact checking, all of those are workarounds for the fact that none of us is uh, infallible or omniscient. Now, your final chapter addresses why rationality matters. And, and this chapter is quite stunning. I mean, you go back in history, some long ago, some post-Civil War period, some to the time of Martin Luther King. And, you know, from my own concern, you, I'm always concerned about this current COVID vaccination versus the freedom to reject the vaccines issue. All of these things is like, why does rationality matter today? And in the next few years, uh, yeah, indeed, it's it's uh, it is um, you know, even if uh, rational arguments don't persuade uh, everyone all the time, which of course they don't. Um, but if we are using non-rational means, like a you know, big demonstration or rally or, or manifesto, it's rationality that tells us which causes we ought to pursue uh, that that should inform the. The, the leaders, the crusaders, the rabble-rousers, the activists, it's rationality that says that this is a cause worth pursuing and that is a cause not worth pursuing. Uh, so, And indeed, historically, I, uh, I, I myself was surprised when I wrote my <clears throat> uh, book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, on the decline of war and crime and violence and autocracy and slavery, uh, how often the very first 
a kind of domino in the process was often a rational argument. There'd be some philosopher or thinker uh, or, or, or activist who would actually lay out a treatise on why some practice of the day could not be defended. Why, uh, say, you're d disemboweling someone for shoplifting or for criticizing the king uh, or burning someone who has the wrong theory of the, the trinity or keeping women uh, in, in the kitchen or keeping African-Americans as slaves, why this uh, could not be defended, why it was inconsistent with other beliefs and values that people of the day uh, 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 held. Uh, and often what would happen is the original treatise or manifesto would be, um, uh, would kind of go viral, as we would say, it would be printed as a pamphlet, translated into other languages, circulated uh, in, in secret, discussed in pubs and coffee houses and salons. And then it would uh, uh, kind of become the, you take over, become the law of the land, but it, but it often originated with an argument. And I have to say, it also pointed out to me that whenever you're looking at some decision or some circumstance, you have to personally look at all your values, not just the value of the particular situation, but all these values together. It's a personal personal quest. Indeed. And, and um, most political uh, decisions involve conflicting values. You, you can't have everything or you can't have the maximum amount of everything. So yeah, freedom is a good thing, but um, uh, that, and that is a value. Everyone should be able to take their own risks. Uh, on the other hand, you, uh, what was also a value is that uh, is, is um, a public health and uh, people not um, breathing in other people's germs. Uh, and you could say, well, of my freedom not to get vaccinated and your freedom not to get COVID, um, yeah, they're, they're, they're in conflict, but one of them really does trump the other. Uh, namely, you know, me not being hospitalized and dying is really a, uh, a higher value. And being able to go to a restaurant and a movie theater and, 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 and work uh, multiplied by uh, 300 million uh, should uh, uh, outweigh your freedom you know, to, 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 to walk around without wearing a mask or, or not, not, not to get vaccinated, but still to sit in a restaurant or a movie theater or, or a workplace. So there are conflicting values, but they can be uh, traded off. They can be discussed rationally. Well, Stephen, always a pleasure. You're always welcome on Tech Nation. So come back. See us again, I hope. Thanks for having me. I'll come back anytime. My guest today is cognitive scientist Steven Pinker. His book is Rationality, What It Is, Why It Seems Scarce, and Why It Matters. It's published by Viking. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. You might know Lemony Snicket as the author of children's books. One series is called A Series of Unfortunate Events, and another called All the Wrong Questions. Or you might know him as Daniel Handler, the author of fiction for adult readers, including Bottle Grove. Mr. Snicket's latest was confounding even for him. It was for adults. It was for children in different ways. It was really quite bewildering. It's called Poison for Breakfast. Mr. Snicket, welcome back to Tech Nation. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's a delight. <laughs> It's a delight to be here. I'm happy to be here. 
Now, your latest book certainly has a great title, Poison for Breakfast. Start us off. Uh, thank you. It is a good title. Um, it was kind of given to me by a, a small child who uh, I was responsible for for a period of time uh, during breakfast. And I was cooking for the child and the child did not want to eat an egg. And I said, you just eat this egg. You know, and I said it with the annoyance that you have when you're an adult and you've done something that the child has not asked you to do. And then the child doesn't appreciate it, which in the adult world, you would be in the wrong. But somehow with a child, you're in the right. Because I said, do you want me to make you an egg? And the child said, no. And then I made an egg and I was like, just eat it. And the child said, no. And I said, it's not poison. <laughs> and the child said, well, when I'm done eating the egg, I'll be closer to the moment of my own death. And so it is poison because it's hastening me towards death. And I thought that was really great. I kept thinking about it. And so I, write, I wrote down on a scrap of paper, you had poison for breakfast. And then soon I realized that I had, that that was also the title of the book. So that was pretty marvelous. So, but I can't take uh, all the credit for it. Some of it goes to the small child. Now, this book is not about poison. This book is really about bewilderment. I must say these days, I think we all feel a little or a lot bewildered. Uh, how do we act when we're bewildered? Um, I think we act like human beings. I think we uh, choose things to believe and hold fast to them and then let go of them suddenly for no particular reason. I think we rush someplace and then we try to calm down. I think we do all of the things you see human beings are doing. In fact, I think that the kind of shadow of the idea of the book is that when you are bewildered, when you are confused, when you don't know what is going on, that's the closest you're actually coming to understand the world. It's actually only when you're certain and you feel everything's more or less in the right order that you do not have a grip on what is going on. But when you are bewildered, I think that is the closest you can get to understanding the world. I actually felt very certain about something the other day before I'd gotten to through your entire book. And I was like, uh-oh, that means it's going to change. <laughs> it's like, that's, a, that's sort of an ancillary uh, corollary. To... Yeah, I would agree. I've had the same experience, too. The only thing I can be certain of is that my certainty is not certain. <laughs> I'll go with that. That would be an easy way to put it. I'll go with that. Now, you do point out the children that may or may not include the, the poor kid who didn't want to eat the egg, that children are always in a state of bewilderment. It seems that anything can change at any time. Yeah, I think when you're young, the world is particularly bewildering because it's new to you. And so, you know, you from the moment you um, arrive out of the womb in one form or another, you are completely confused by what is going on. And the people who hopefully are caring for you, if you're lucky enough to have people who care for you, are going to say something like, we have to strap you into this bit of plastic that's inside this metal box that's on wheels. And everything's going to blur by you for a while. And then we're going to take you out of the metal box and we're going to bring you up some stairs. And there's grandma. There's an old lady. That's basically how you live your life when you're uh, a young person over and over again. And um, I've always said that's why I think uh, folk tales and fairy tales are so appealing to children. It isn't because of the hero's journey or kind of any of that kind of nonsense. It's because 
the premises are always bewildering, right? Once upon a time, there was a king, the king had a daughter, the daughter never smiled. And so the king had a contest that whoever could make the daughter smile not to marry her. What? <laughs> Everything about that is nonsense. But when you're a child and you read it, you say, well, that makes about as much sense as the thing where I'm strapped into a plastic thing and they put me inside a metal vehicle, etc." I think the state of bewilderment in childhood is, is a kind of true and innocent state. And then as we grow older, we have to talk ourselves out of being bewildered. We say, well, maybe that isn't really, uh, you know, so confusing after all. I can't wander around saying, isn't it ridiculous to have a job? I should just get a job, for instance. And I think as that goes on, we talk ourselves out of bewilderment, but that deep in our hearts, when we think about the world, we have no idea what is going on. People often say, you know, I was so happy when I was a child. Maybe it's because they were comfortable with the idea of bewilderment. Maybe, or maybe they um, remember being happy as a child. I mean, at what period in your life do you cry most often? When you are a child. <laughs> when you're one year old, you probably cry 17 times a day. If you cried 17 times a day when you were, you know, in your mid-30s, what, people would say, what's going on? Are you having a breakdown? Even if you were in the heart of grief, people would say, that's too many times you're crying. But a child all the time, Right. Think about over the course of a meal of like, oh, that grape tasted funny. And then I dropped my napkin and then I porked myself with a fork. And then I had a bite of something that I didn't want, or I thought it was something else, or it was too hot or it was too cold, or it spilled on my coat or whatever it is. That's just during the course of a meal, a, a child will cry several times, sometimes enough that you have to take the child out of the restaurant and be grateful that you have enough cash on you that you can put it all over the table and say, please take this cash so that I might be allowed into your Japanese restaurant again, despite the fact that I made a spectacle of myself with my crying infant. <laughs> this happened. This happens. <laughs> Independent of what kind of restaurant. Right. You might, have, you, might have, you might have detected a note of autobiography in that anecdote, and it's true. That's what happens. That's one of the things I tell people when their child becomes a um, toddler. I say, carry cash. <laughs> That's the way to do it. Sometimes you're gonna, you can't wait for the bill, you're going to have to just put down a hundred dollars and leave. <laughs> That's the way it works. Well, you, yeah. you do learn other things in this book. Uh, you also teach the, the rules of how to write a book. Yeah. Well, most of them I kind of think maybe, maybe not. Let's go there. Well, I talk about there being three rules for writing a book. And the first is to uh, make sure you use the element of surprise, which I think is really interesting because <laughs> because it's really startling when you use the element of surprise and people get interested in what's going on. And then the other is missing information. If there's missing information, I think it creates an aura of mystery and hunger, hunger to know more. And of course, so many books are too long. Hardly any books are too short. So most authors can be reminded to do a better job in terms of the missing information in the book. And then nobody knows what the third rule is. I know, or it'd be so easy, but it's not. No, no, uh -uh. no. no. but this uh, you got me on the missing information because we're watching thrillers all the time and whodunits and all of that. It's you know, this it kind of contributes to uh, what we really like about what we're watching, kind of engages us, takes us out of our life. Absolutely. And that's why Agatha Christie didn't title a book. The butler did it. <laughs> Sir Arthur Conan Doyle didn't say the case of where it turned out to be the sister. <laughs> Because there, that you need the missing information. Otherwise, it wouldn't be very much fun to read. But I, I shouldn't say controlled, but designed bewilderment can be fun. 
Undesigned bewilderment can be fun. I think I think what makes me feel better when I'm bewildered is the reminder that the world is bewildering and that's why I'm bewildered. That's okay then. You're and it's not I don't I shouldn't be able to sort things out. How can I sort things out? There's so many things. So when I'm confused, I can just say this is supposed to be happening. I'm supposed to be confused right now. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Lemony Snicket. Yes, the author of children's books, a series called A Series of Unfortunate Events, and another called All the Wrong Questions. Someone named Daniel Handler has written a number of adult fiction books, some eight or so. One's called Bottle Grove. Mr. Snicket's latest is Poison for Breakfast. Now, is Poison adult for children? What do you think? Uh, I think it's for anyone who would be interested in thinking about how the shadow of death is falling across our lives as we make our way through this confusing landscape and the juggernaut of culture that pushes us to and fro to remember that our time here is brief. Um, also, if you're interested in arguing about eggs, there is definitely some strong arguments about eggs in the book. There's a uh, discussion of a Nina Simone song. Uh, there's a discussion of a complicated history of colonialism and identity in the case of one musician and one author. Um, what else? There's uh, If you're interested in swimming in the open water, as I am, I was swimming in the San Francisco Bay only this morning. Um, those are some of the things that the book is about. But I assumed it would be a book for children when I wrote it, but it has now been published for all ages because they thought even more people would be interested in it. But it was certainly inspired by the fact that uh, as a, when I talk to children, it often results in some super interesting and philosophical conversations. And that oftentimes that sense of philosophy is absent from children's literature. So I thought maybe I could put some in. Now, I have to say that your style of writing is really great. Thank you. And, 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 and very unique. And, and one of the things that you do that I like is I like how you use a word and then quickly explain it. As in, you use the word lovers, uh, a word for people who are kissing. It's like that simple. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, lover in particular is a word that sometimes means various things over various times. And um, that's why I think the word kind of makes us cringe but sometimes you, it's the only word that counts. It's the only word that really describes the situation. So I said kissing in case people thought it was something else. Right. But let's get back to the how you explain things. How do you decide to explain a particular word? Well, the first time it happened, I was working on the first volume in a series of unfortunate events, which is called The Bad Beginning. And I was writing the first chapter and uh, I, I used the word rickety. And then I paused and I thought to myself, do young people know what rickety means? And then I thought, well, some young people do and some young people don't. Kind of like some old people know what rickety means and some old people don't. And so then I thought, well, then I better explain it, but in a way that isn't irritating. And so then I explained it and I thought that it was a reasonable uh, example of explaining something in a way that wasn't irritating and in fact made the narrator's voice even stronger and uh, had the possibility of haunting the book even more aggressively. So I decided that was a good way to go. Um, well, it certainly works. It oh, certainly works. Uh, yeah, I think some young people and some old people have learned various words from me. That charms me. Well, here's a word. Is it zimzum? Zimzum, yeah. Zimzum. Let's spell it. It's the radio. Well, it's uh, T-Z-I-M-T-Z-U-M. 
usually in its uh, transliteration, but it's a Hebrew word. So, um, uh, of course, it, it would be spelled with Hebrew letters rather than this alphabet that we tend to use. Uh, it's about creating an empty space so that an idea might flourish. It comes from the idea that before the world could be created, the space for the world to be created had to be made, which I thought was a very beautiful idea. Um, it's not, of course, exclusively a Jewish idea. I think many, many cultures have the sense of, oh, we need to make a space for something. But I found that to use the word of my culture was uh, fun. Plus, zimzum is a fun word to know. It's a good Scrabble word. Uh, it has two Zs, so uh, it's a good way to use them up if you have two Zs. Here's a quote I like. Every idea is a fresh surprise. Yeah, I think... Um, we, when an idea enters our head, it is like a stranger walking into a room. You think, what's this idea doing here? How did it come to pass? Where did it come from? Even if I can see the little pieces that put it together, how did, wh why is it now an idea? That's interesting to me. And how about this? You say this about piped in music. There is no such thing, of course, as music everybody likes. Yes, I quite agree. I think what's often unfortunate about piped in music is that they have chosen a kind of music that they think everybody likes, but it isn't that everybody likes it. It's that nobody quite hates it, which is not the same as everyone liking it. And so it's mildly irritating to everyone. That seems a little sad to me. Yeah, the, the bottom. Because I would rather hear music where I would say, surely somebody is loving this music right now, instead of, no, no one is loving it right now. I had a friend who used to say, movies the whole family will love meant nobody will like it. Yeah. <laughs> It's a definition. <laughs> yeah, no, I would agree. It means no one quite hates it enough to say, dear God, don't make me go to that. That's right. That's right. Now, here's my final one I'm pressing you on. Okay. When anything is open to the public, the public get worried. Yeah, it's true. I think um, when something is accessible to everyone, such as, I don't know, say democracy, then there's certain people who begin to think that idea makes me nervous. I don't like the idea of democracy. I don't like the idea that everyone is voting on this. I don't like the idea that anyone can choose who the next uh, elected official is. I don't like how everyone's opinions are being welcomed. And so you see that in other places, parks, libraries, anywhere where everyone is supposed to be uh, living and breathing and existing, the streets, people get nervous about them. People want to make sure that some people aren't there. Now, you write as Lemony Snicket, and you also write as Daniel Handler. It's true. It's true. And now, it, when you're in each headspace, which you must be in, different ones, um, are you a different writer, do you think? No. I think I'm the same writer. I think I'm doing different things. That's what I think. It's really not that surprising. I mean, those are two things that I do, but there's a lot of other things that I do. I um, eat carrots. I do that a lot. I, um, I'm going to be preparing rockfish tonight. That's another thing that I do. Um, I read poetry. I wash my feet. There's all kinds of things that I do. And so it's not surprising that in my professional life, there's more than one thing. I think most people now do several things. It is very interesting when you think about it, because you're right. We do do several things. And I'm... I'm keep not struggling, but I'm really, I'm really enamored with, we'll say this idea of bewilderment 
in all our lives. It's like, oh my gosh, we got to run over here. Oh, this is going to happen. I don't understand this. I don't understand all that. You know, all the internet. Now we get all this news. Like, I don't understand any of that. And, uh, and when you get right down to it, you know, life is bewildering. Um, I think we needed somebody to tell us that. Well, thank you. I hope so. I would like, I enjoy sitting with the idea that when I'm confused, I'm actually wise. And I would invite other people to sit me and uh, sit with me and think about this idea um, via the book Poison for Breakfast. I'm not actually inviting people to come over to my house and sit and think (laughs) about this. I'm inviting them to read instead the book Poison for Breakfast, in which this idea was written down first on index cards and then on legal paths and then typed into a document and now published uh, over here by the good folks at Norton and Liverlight. Poison for Breakfast. I'm holding it up next to my face, even though I'm realizing that only you, Mrs. Gunn, can see it because we're on an audio medium. But you and I are looking at each other through the magic of screens. And I'm, I can guarantee I've, I'm seeing it. In fact, I'll, we'll just do a little, we'll both show it to yeah, each we'll other. Yeah, we'll both show it. Show. It's actually what I like about it is that it has some gold lettering on it that says Lemony Snicket, and it's fun to move it around Ooh. and catch the light. <laughs> It reminds me of phosphorescence on the beach. Now, you did say early on about anyone interested in the specter of death. And uh, and it's like, oh, I don't want any of that. It's like, let me tell you. You don't want any death? Uh Uh Uh-oh. I have bad news for you. Bad bad news for you. Let me tell you. There's one thing I really enjoyed about your book, and that is that I knew from the start I wasn't going to get hurt. (laughs) I was only going to have to keep thinking, and that was good enough for me. (laughs) Yeah. It's not a book that will kill you. I don't know what that would be. It would have to be a much longer book and it would have to be dropped from a great height, I think is the only way that a book could kill you. Well, if I think of a good title for for that book, I'll, I'll let you know. Maybe you'll, maybe you can work it out. Uh, well, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, Lemony, you're always welcome on Tech Nation. Thanks for stopping by. Well, it's always a delight to speak with you. I look forward to doing so again. My guest today is Lemony Snicket. His short, little, tidy book is poison for breakfast. It's published by Live Right Publishing. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor.